delving into stocks, property, bonds, economics, and more. This is the Stock Market Mentor Podcast. Taking an unconventional stance, we challenge the industry to help you protect your investments and empower you with the knowledge to become a savvy investor. We don't provide financial advice. Here's Steve Moriarty, Tom Hill, and Jacob Senior. Okay, we're here for another edition of Stock Market Mentor Podcast. Uh, I'm Steve Moriarty, and I'm here with my uh, esteemed co-hosts, Tom Hill and Jacob Senior. How are we, gents? Good, mate. You had to think about that one, didn't you? Esteemed or... (laughs) Struggling for a good adjective. (laughs) Anyway, righto, we're going to get on with it. Um, This week, we're going to talk about uh, the the finance theory versus reality. Um, Now, what we're talking about here is may be a little bit dry to a lot of people. Um, Economic theory is not exactly known to set um, TikTok on uh, (laughs) fire, but but it's really important in investing. And the reason why is because theories generally – you generally develop a theory to think about how things work – and in the stock market, because the stock market's forward-looking, what you really want to do, and the holy grail is, I've developed a way to predict the future, and therefore I can make lots of money. Um, one thing that, this is where the efficient market theory, which is also known as the efficient market hypothesis, and is also known as modern portfolio theory, all seek to be able to predict the future, um, but also talk about the issue of risk. Um, And we think there's plenty of flaws in the theory when you look at reality. Um, It would be equivalent to saying, I've developed this theory, um, you know, E equals MC squared, and then you say, well, how does it fit in reality? And you go, well, it works probably, you know, 70% of the time. That's not much good. Um, because there's 30% of the time where it doesn't work and that 30% of the time can be be critical. So we're going to discuss that. I'll give a few um, uh, demonstrations or an example of of how it works. Um, Hopefully you'll find this interesting because it is really one of those things where when you, um, Tom, you were saying before, just before we started recording about, you know, you and Jacob getting into investing. Yeah. Well, like I'd say probably it wasn't till two or three years into this stuff that we even heard what EMT is or efficient market theory was. So I guess it's probably pretty important as well to frame like why any of this is relevant. So obviously EMT works on a number of assumptions and we'll kind of break those down and kind of go through why we think the logic behind that is flawed but I think also more importantly, Steve, if you just want to kind of at a high level explain what you know efficient market theory is and why it's important to understand that it may not you know, actually give you the best outcome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, um, look, I, I've got a master's in finance and when I did that, this was what they taught you, right? This was the, the theory that you learned about how markets operate. Um, and it's, it, it's quite interesting because... The more, the more widely you read and the more you look at markets, the more you get to a position that this thing's not really very good um, from an investment return point of view. 
So let me let me give you an idea. I'll I'll give you a, a, an example, and then we can we can work through the assumptions and go. Well, you know, why is that not right? Mm. So basically, modern portfolio. The, the whole idea kicked off in about nineteen fifties with a guy called Harry Markowitz, and the idea was, okay, how do we how do we you know deal with risk in terms of investments? So this is what Markowitz said. And it, uh, as I say, it's it's really quite important because any theory worth its salt has to reflect reality. And my argument or our argument is it doesn't really do that that well. So anyway, let's deal into it. So the idea, what Markowitz said was, okay, why don't people or investors put all their money in one stock? Now, logically enough, because it's too risky, okay? So... What he did was he tried to develop a system where you could maximise your returns and minimise your risk, right? Now, and that's the holy grail. Everybody wants a, a certainty, yep. right? So simple. No. So Markowitz says, if you look at, you look at, let's say you find a really great stock, right? And it's a pharmaceutical stock. There's a drug that's going to be approved, right? Now, you want to invest in that, Okay. But you want to know, well, what's the risk and what's the reward? So Markowitz said, if it jumps from $10 to $100, if it's approved, there's about a 20% chance of that happening, right? If it doesn't get the approval, then it's worthless, okay? And what this happens a lot where you see in the mining industry where we think we've discovered, you know, gold and then they dig further and go, actually, no, we didn't. The stock price goes from $0.10 cents to $10 and then immediately reverts back to $0.10, cents, you know, really quickly. So when you deal with this thing called expected value, which is simply saying what are the range of outcomes and to try and sort of quantify that. So if you look at this example, you've got a 20% chance of $100, right, and an 80% chance of going to zero. Now, long story short, that equals that equals $20. You originally bet $10 buying the stock, so that's a 100% return, right? Now, what, what he looked at was and said, well, what you want to do is invest as, as many of these opportunities as possible, right? And so that's how you get to a basically a diversified portfolio. And he developed the theory that said investors won't invest in that one stock because it's too risky, so they'll invest in lots of stocks. And what he talked about, which we'll talk a little bit about further, is this this idea of risk is volatility, right? Or, sorry, the other way around. Volatility is risk. And volatility is just the change in price. But the assumption Markowitz made is really important because what he said was people don't like fluctuations therefore they'll trade that off with less risk for less return mm. right so it's instead of buying the one pharmaceutical and saying hey I'm you know I'm going to maybe double my money <laughs> what Markowitz said was well most people are going to say oh that's a bit risky I'm going to buy lots of stocks and therefore I might not, you know, I might double my money, but I might make 20 or 30%. So, 
So that was the general idea. Yeah, a couple but, will die, a couple will do really well. Overall, portfolio should outperform the market. Exactly. That's the idea. Now, what, what happened was he attached a whole raft of assumptions to these, to this, to this theory. And this is where, where I think it's really important because any theory is really, like you were saying before, Tom, you get into buying stocks and you don't really think much about what the theory is behind it. Right? You're just sort of like, hey, I'm going to go and pick stocks and away you go. When you, when you understand the theory and the assumptions behind it, what you get is a different picture, right? And that's really important because this is the theory that dominates the finance sector, okay? And so most fund managers will be working off something along the efficient market, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's their sort of belief, so if we, can, if we can go through some of these uh, assumptions, what, you do, what we can do is sort of say to people, well, look, this is where you, you sort of say, well, hang on, that's not really true. And if it's not really true, then you have to, you, what you're doing is you're chipping away at this theory by going, well, hang on, Steve, where is this thing actually working, mm. right? Um, so... Well, I mean, like, one of the first assumptions, right, is that everyone has access to the exact same information mm-hmm. at the exact same time. Yeah. Which is outrageous. <laughs> which is stupid. It's well, just you, illogically. All you have to do is spend five seconds thinking about the amount of information that even I have versus you or you have versus Steve. And yeah. to your point earlier on, someone like Warren Buffett has that much information coming at him from all different angles. Um it's the first assumption blows it out of the water for me. And the second one, which is the psychological factor, which we'll talk about in a sec, just makes me want to turn the laptop off and carry on to the next thing. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but you've got to this, – this is why it's really important because when, you, when you're getting information from the media and you're, you know, you're reading about stock prices or you know, that sort of thing, what, what you don't realise is there's an underlying theory and assumptions, mm-hmm. right, so that would be that would be great if it was relevant. But when you when you look at it not being relevant, um, that's when you start to struggle and say, "Well, hang on, why is this thing any good?" So, but that the first one is really a killer. It's a bit like, "Oh, well, everybody's got the same information," and it's like, "Actually, well, no, that's not right." And it's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," but just pretend everybody did. And it's like, "Okay, well, <laughs> let's pretend." And what's the and what's the next one? Well, the next one is. The, it, according to the efficient market theory, it's when you invest, it's a, it's a single period, right? Now, what, what do I mean by that? What, what they're saying is you, you have this one um, start and finish period for investing, right? And what we're saying is, well, hang on, people don't invest $100,000 when they're 20 and go, right, now I, I'm, I'm going to come back when I'm 60, that's not the way you invest. Most of us, if you think about superannuation, dollar cost average or, you know, invest that way. Yep. So what that means is we're saying, well, hang on, there's there's periods where it's really great to put a lot of money in the market and there's periods where you shouldn't put a lot in the market. But that but the the EMT doesn't doesn't account that way. And so again, 
the more you work through the assumptions, the more you start going, well, that one's not right. No, that one's not very good either. Mm. That one's not very good either. And you get to the point where you're saying, as I sort of said at the start, it's a bit like, well, Steve, when is this thing actually work? And what we've found since Markowitz started this stuff in the 50s is there's more and more of these anomalies coming out, right? These things where you go, oh, well, according to the theory, that shouldn't happen. Well, it mm. just happened. Well, now we have we have so much data that investors and, and rational people can actually look back on. It starts to blow theories that were, that were created in the 50s based on essentially word of mouth and, and written documents that um, just out of the water. And one that genuinely makes me laugh is this one, which is it assumes that all investors are rational and act in their own self-interest to maximise profits. Well, we're not all rational. Yeah, I can yeah. tell you for a fact I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I've never bought my emotions to the stock market. Don't know about you guys. <laughs> but that's but that's a valid point, isn't it? I mean, if, if you said... If you said that to people to start with, people would go, well, that's ridiculous, mm. right? But this is the thing, and, and I, I think, Jacob, you and I were talking about it before when I said that was one thing I really struggled with in university was these, I, was these theories, right? And it was always a bit like, yeah, but that's not how it works in the real world. Yeah, 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 but, you know, just pretend it does. And it, it, it makes, you know, like the theory looks really logical, Right, and you sort of go, "That's beautiful, yeah," but it doesn't work. And it's like, okay, so what's the point of it? Yeah, yeah. but it looks really nice. Well, but it gives you comfort, comfort, yeah, in predictability. It's easy to talk about, yeah, and it gives you predictability, and it also um, incentivizes the, the the big wigs almost, and say, so, "Like this is easy. this is the theory that you need to look at. Keep your money in the market. We'll continue to take the fees, and happy days. Well, It'll always go up." Yeah, the the industry. At at some point, and we'll talk about alternatives soon. But the industry went. Actually, this is really good because first of all, you can you can then say to people, "Well, you need to diversify, and we can do that for you." The second thing is you you end up. You know, I'm cutting a long story short here, but you can you end up with this. Oh well, you the expectation is eight to ten percent, mm-hmm. right over the long term. So. You start to get these things where, as you said, Jacob, you look at the incentives for the industry and they start to look at it and go, this is actually really good. We've got computer modelling, right? We can draw this nice curve. Um, We can tell people that they're diversified. You know, all of these things from a theory that the underlying assumptions are not correct. And... The more what I can tell you what has happened historically is the more the, the further we've gone on, the more the more we've got. Hang on, well that's not right. Oh, okay, well we'll tweak the theory a bit. Mm. And so what they came up with was we had the efficient market theory, then we had um, the weak edition of it, then we had the strong edition of it. So in other words, they started just you know. It's a bit like, oh, we'll just adjust it here. Oh, well, yeah, we can we can accommodate that. We'll just adjust this bit here. And a weaker version of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, that but, but that's what, what I mean. mean? It's, you see, you, you look at that and say, this is where we're starting to struggle, guys. You know, um, we need to maybe have a look at this and, you know, revisit it. And so that's what's, that's what's been going on for a long time, right? And and as I said, it's, it's all of these assumptions where – 
you don't, you know, according to that, you don't have stock market bubbles. Why not? Well, because people are all rational. Mm. Well, that's ridiculous. We know there's stock market bubbles, there's property bubbles, and that's not the way it works. So, again, what you were saying before, Tom, about, you know, when you start out, you're really flying blind because no one's talking about the theory that underlies it. And it's the thing we talk about quite a bit because what we often do is when we when we make decisions we don't we don't look at our own assumptions underlying it a lot of arguments between people on you know a whole raft of issues are basically because people have assumed something that may or may not be correct about their opposition right so but you don't talk about those you just automatically assume quote unquote and so that's where you get you get you know i won't bore you with them all now but you get seasonality you get the small cap effect um you get things like this thing called turn of the month all of these things chip away at the efficient market theory mm. right and at some point you have to say well you know maybe there's some alternative explanations that detail the stock market um, better than efficient market theory does. Let me let me just jump in. These are just some notes that I made over the couple last couple of weeks, and I've genuinely skipped them. I have no idea what they mean, so maybe we can talk about it. But just on the weak and strong um, theory, EMH is classified into three forms: weak, semi-strong, and strong, based on the level of information already reflected in the prices. Yep. The weak form asserts that past prices and trading volume can't be used to predict the future price movements which is insane. The semi-strong form states that the public information, such as financial statements or news, is already incorporated into prices, making it difficult to consistently profit from it, which is against the whole theory itself. And the strong form argues that all information, including public and private, is already factored into security prices, making it impossible to gain an advantage. Yeah. But you're all wrong. But that's insane. what I mean. It, it's what did you just say? <laughs> well, it, that's the strong form, which is what's ex, ex, genuinely accepted across the industry, is that all price is the, the price that it should be and nobody can make money from it. Well, well, we know that in earnings yields and due to psychological and behavioural factors that you can make money because they're under or overpriced. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that's where we should probably have a, a, a quick chat about the alternatives. Mm. Um so most of um, most people will know or hopefully have heard of Robert Schiller and his book Irrational Exuberance, right? Bought out in two thousand. Um, he gives if you if you think about the human brain, you have got two parts, right? You have got the rational part and you have got the you know irrational or but emotional behavioural part. Okay, efficient market theory says here's the rational part. What Schiller said is. Okay, that's not right. Here's the data to show it's not right. And what he simply did was he said, look, if you look throughout history, dividends are fairly stable, right? Maybe three per you know, three or four percent. And what he said was if we if that if the efficient market theory was right, the prices wouldn't be so volatile. Right? Because remember, that's what Markowitz said. What Schiller said, what Schiller showed was that the prices were really volatile, right? and we know that. 
So Schiller then said, set out basically to say, okay, well, if it's not rational, how do we look at it? And that's where he came up with a lot of the behavioural stuff. So you then delve into things such as um, groupthink, right? And we all believe, you know, like we're talking in, what are we in, June, and NVIDIA's, you know, gone through the roof, right? Well, that wouldn't really be possible, but you've got all those behavioural aspects of humans, which is we're all jumping on the latest hot stock, we're all bailing out of the, you know, the, the good stocks or the bad stocks. And so you've got a groupthink behavioural mentality going on and that there's more and more of this stuff. GameStop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Short squeeze, yeah. They're all, they're, what it's showing is that there's this thing called social physics, right, which is basically, let me give you a short demonstration. Ten people are standing at the lights, right? There's no traffic coming, but there's a don't walk sign, right? You're all standing there and, and you know, everyone's thinking, well, really. You could just walk on. I'll yeah. just walk on, right? But it takes one person to do that. When one person does it, the next person thinks, oh, well, if Jacob's walking, I'm walking. Right, so I walk. And then two people walk. Tom says, oh, well, if those guys are walking, I'm going to walk, right? Pretty soon there's an idiot standing there by himself, right, because everybody else has walked <laughs> off, like right? Two shoes. And it's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, but what, it, what it shows is a couple of things. Is One thing is everybody's got a, a, a tolerance level, right? And so generally you don't want to be the first, but – you're happy being the fifth or the sixth or the seventh, right? And but we've all got a, a gauge as to where we we form in with the crowd. Mm. So what Schiller said is, when you look at these markets and you get stock market bubbles and property bubbles and bond bubbles, what you're seeing is the behavioural aspects of people in the stock market. That wasn't part of Markowitz's theory. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's that's where it's become more and more obvious that the theory is is not really appropriate once you start investigating it a little further on. Right, comes back to valuations. Well, a lot of the time, yeah, it does. It does. But you see, again, according to Markowitz, the value is the value, right? Or the price is the value. And what we're saying is, well, no, 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 there's a big difference between price and value, right? But according to Markowitz, it's like, no, 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 if it's $1.10, then that's the price because everybody's rational. They've all got the information. Jacob might think it's um, positive. You might think it's negative. They cancel out. And so the price you see is the, the, the quote, it's worth, yeah. the it's real price, in. right? So um, the other one which we'll talk about in a lot more detail is uh, the Kelly criterion, um, more quantitative. It's a little bit, it, it's fairly sort of heavy going. Um, we're going to do a series on that. But again, it's, I think it's really important because when I've, when I've coached people and talked to them about this is the efficient market theory, this is, you know, uh, Kelly, the Kelly criterion, all called capital growth theory, most people go, oh, yeah, that one makes a lot of sense. Mm. And and that's the, the Kelly criterion. Well, it just it makes logical sense to a lot of people as well. Well, it's based more on reality, mm. right, which is saying, well, there are information advantages and Warren Buffett knows more about the stock market than you ever will. That's an advantage, 
mm-hmm. right? Um, so there's, there's these once you once you get away from the assumptions of the efficient market theory, you then start to look out into alternatives to explore the way the markets really work, and there's a there's a lot of that stuff that's been going on over the last probably twenty or thirty years, and what you're finding is more and more the efficient market theory is fading away. But, and I think you mentioned it before, Tom, about if you if you take that away, then you get left with, okay, well, how does the stock market really work? And and then it, it gets a bit messy. Well, if you take that away, it's hard to predict and people want certainty. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. So if I want, if I'm going to go to someone for help managing my super, for example, I want them to be able to tell me what my expected return is. Well, okay. with a with a you know a degree of yeah, with a degree of probability. Mm-hmm. Like, listen, you know, mate, Tom, eight to ten percent, correct? Yeah, but really, like, no one can predict that accurately. They can only decide, you know, is this overvalued or undervalued? Yeah. Um, I mean, if if anyone figured that out, how to predict one hundred percent of the time, every time, they'd be in the Bahamas after yeah. one bet. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> but well, it's, but it's true. It again, and again, that's why I was saying before. You know, when you look at the when you look at the incentives around the efficient market theory, it gives you a great deg- a great degree of certainty, right? Mm. And that's what people, as you say, if you're uneducated about stocks, that's what you sort of go, oh, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense, because you're not underhearing, you're not underlining the assumptions. Well, it's it it's almost hypocritical as well because you you think about the efficient market the hypothesis and. Um, they're essentially saying that you you can't beat the market over time. However, within the industry, in the subsections within the industry, there's tens of thousands of um, experts telling you that they can beat the market using using that theory. Most don't. And most don't. So, um, which is super super hypocritical from from people that actually understand the industry. <laughs> because they you sit with in a meeting with them and they'll say oh yeah look we follow the efficient market hypothesis and you just got to keep your cash in the market and we'll compound you or tell me between 8 and 10% or whatever it might be it's it's a good time it's always a good time to be in the market um and in the same breath fail uh, fail to make any money yeah if you look at i think we discussed this in a previous podcast you know 85% of them don't beat the index mm-hmm. So you have to look at that and say, well, why, why do people think they can beat the index? And our argument is we think you can do that, but you won't do that using the efficient market theory. You'll, mm. you'll do that if you, boot, if you invest more like, say, Warren Buffett, who uses the Kelly criterion as a way to allocate money. Right? So that's where, yeah. we're sort of, that's where we're sort of aiming. So, um, well... Just on that note, like, what do you recommend them? What do you reckon the listeners, where would you focus your attention, you know, if you were them? Yep. Like, what books should we be reading to look at alternative yeah, places or, um, yeah. There's plenty There's plenty of books out there. I think Robert Schiller's book, Irrational Exuberance, is one of the best ones, right? Um, from, because it, it it's much more accurate, I think, and, you know, we talk about the Cape Ratio, um, it's much more accurate in terms of the correlation between the sort of prediction, 
right? So if you look at CAPE, it predicts, you know, pretty well. Well, that's what you're ultimately looking for in investing, right? So, um, so, you know, that's a really good book. If you're interested in the Kelly Criterion, there's a book out called Fortune's Formula written well, a little while ago now, but it's a really great read. Now, it's a little bit... It's a little bit heavy in the sense of it's – I've often found throughout my career if you read a book, you put it down and then five years later you, go, you read it again and you go, oh, right, now I – you know, mm. like there's, there's points you read the first time and I, I still find this. There's points I read from books I've read 15 years ago that I go, ah, oh, okay, now I get it. So because I'm, I'm, I've got more knowledge now – but I know now what I'm looking for. And the first step in that, Tom, is saying, what are the theories, right? What are the competing theories? And so the one that you generally get tilted towards is the efficient market theory. And what we're saying is, well, hang on, there's these other theories you want to have a look at as well, and the data supports those, right? Um, but... Generally, let me let me wind it up here. The, the what we talked about at the start was, oh, you want a theory because that will help you predict. It's a lot easier to say, oh, listen, I've got this theory. Um, take an umbrella tomorrow because it's going to rain. Okay, that's generally what we do when we make decisions, right, about investing. I'm going to bet. I'm going to put this money in the market. How much do I get back? Right? Nobody ever says, oh, I haven't got a bloody clue. Right? Look, mate, you could get 2%, you could get 100 I'm not really sure. Right? You can work on some fairly good probabilities, provided the theory about the probabilities is right. Okay? So when you look at it, we look at the evidence now and say the, the efficient market theory doesn't really reflect reality right? and, or reality doesn't support it. The problem is reality is generally a little bit messier than most theories talk about, mm -hmm. right? Now, that makes it hard to sell a certain level, as you said, Tom, a, a, a level of certainty to somebody if they go, well, I went in and saw this guy and he couldn't tell me what the hell's going on. Yeah, looked at me and said, I don't know. And he wants to charge me 1.5% <laughs> manage my money. I'm good, though. Yeah, I promise. <laughs> so um, we... You know, the wash-up is we don't think it's the best approach and we'll be talking more about, you know, what we think is the best approach. Um, but what you should do is, in sum, I think you should basically read up on stock market history, um, buy, definitely buy Robert Schiller's book. Um, it's, a, it's a really great book. Um, the other one is a book uh, called uh, Probable Returns by Ed Easterling. It's, it's a really good book as well. Um, and, and both of those books dismantle the efficient market theory um, quite substantially. So that's where you, that's where you want to be heading. Um, and as I said, we'll, we'll do a series later on about uh, the Kelly criterion and talk about the, the, the assumptions underlying that because they're, they're much closer to reality and most of the world's really successful investors – um, Warren Buffett, a guy called uh, Jim Simons, and a guy called Ed Thorpe, all use the Kelly Criterion. Right, so you sort of look at that again as evidence and go, well, it's you know 
there's got to be something in this. Good enough for mm. them. Good, yeah, yeah. Well, they seem to be doing all right. Best investors. Um, so you know, I'll, I'll just say this quote at the end. There's a great quote by Yogi Berra, um, who says, "In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is." Right, and that's what we're sort of saying. It's it's all well and good to learn these theories, but if they don't work in reality, then you know they're not that much used to. Yeah, I think we might wrap it up there. We we talk about it all day, hey? Yeah, yeah. Like, I just want to say, if it, this topic is incredibly deep and broad, and if you have any questions at all, um, jump on the website, uh, reach out via email. Um, and if you have any real life examples, even, and you want to just get us to run it by you or run it by us, then just reach out. I'm more than happy to chat. Okay. See, see you next awesome. time. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for another episode of Stock Market Mentor. We hope you have enjoyed the show. And if you have any questions about the episode or want to discuss how we can help you become a better investor, please feel free to contact us at support at stockmarketmentor.com.au. We'll see you next time.